Tonight's reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. Now at this time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. The word of the Lord. There are certain biblical characters that I get a little bit tired of. After half a century, after spending my entire life with this book, isn't that crazy? But I like it. These characters are like family. You live with them, you know them pretty thoroughly. Of course, sometimes they irritate you. David, maybe he didn't bug me 30 years ago. Now he seems so alpha male-ish, so murders people. Peter, so cocky, so overestimates himself. Paul, I don't know, but I don't really get tired of Mary. The scripture text was actually in liturgy last Sunday, but Russell chose a different text. So though I realize that liturgically the baby is supposed to be outside of the womb by now, I just wanted to spend a little time with these women It's sort of a rare opportunity. Mary and Elizabeth and their wombs. A baby inside a womb leaping for joy. I mean, of course, this couldn't be possible. But it almost seems like Luke knew what it felt like to have a baby kick inside of you. It's so intimate and physical and weird. And something only women can experience. It's almost like in this moment in the text, the patriarchy, so present throughout most of the Bible, disappears. Elizabeth and Mary, pregnant women, 
define this moment. I like it. It's practically surprising that the church fathers didn't just lop off this part of Luke, because they're clearly pretty uncomfortable with it. Listen to Tertullian. He's here talking about the scandal of the Incarnation. Start with the birth itself, he says, an aversion, not my experience. The filth within the womb, sort of insulting. The bodily fluid, the blood, and the loathsome, curdled lump of flesh. I don't think I experienced my fetuses quite that way. The loathsome, curdled lump of flesh, which has to be fed for nine months of the same muck, the womb. I like thinking of the church fathers having to contend with the womb, though it clearly sort of disturbed them. They decide eventually that Mary and her womb have to stay because they are so essential to God incarnate in the world. The word made flesh by growing bones from the calcium Mary eats. Awesome. But it's not like Mary's part is all sweet little careful mother making sure she takes her prenatal vitamins on time. Not at all. The Magnificat, her song that we read here in Luke, has been called the most revolutionary document in the world. Her savior puts down the mighty from their thrones, that's no small thing, exalts those of low degree, that's like the definition of revolution, fills the hungry with good things, great, and sends the rich empty away. That's taking it pretty far. The Magnificat is part of the daily liturgy of the church, the liturgy of the hours. So some people, almost all monastics, are reciting it every day. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Put down the mighty, exalt those of low degree, send the rich empty away. How would the government fund elections? How could capitalism possibly function? What are they thinking, those who recite these words every day? Calling for the demise of the system that runs the world? Or does everyone just not take those words seriously? I don't know if Mary spoke them calmly. It sort of seems like she did from the context. But I could see getting a little worked up by them. I read that the Russian czars, who were incredibly wealthy, were terrified by the fact that the Magnificat was sung in the Orthodox liturgy. It wasn't exactly something that they wanted the people imagining every day. I can see why the rich sent away empty. Do we really even want to imagine that? But whoever called Mary's song the most revolutionary document in the world ever might have been slightly overstating the case. I don't know, I mean, the French wrote pamphlets that incited the masses to a complete bloody overthrowing of the ruling class. This happened. Not just getting the mighty off their thrones or scattering their imaginations, but actually scattering their heads. People cut off heads. But maybe the Magnificat suggests some sort of more imaginative revolution some sort of revolution that doesn't need violence. 
a radical alteration of everything that is, that doesn't involve people getting shot. I think that it's worth imagining, though it might take a lot of imagination, not based on a conforming to what is generally done or what is generally believed. I think Mary seems a little bit more unconventional than the typical bourgeois paintings hanging in the seats of power seem to suggest. Maybe more avant-garde than queenly, white, Western European. She wasn't white, Western European. She's from Nazareth. There was a joke that people said, can anything good come from Nazareth? It's like being from this remote, broken down, totally undesirable place, like a trailer park outside of Reno, Nevada. Mary. She's unmarried, pregnant, poor, and she sings this song like she's some little French revolutionary, rejoicing in the radical alteration of the system that runs the world, the complete transformation of society. I don't think it's crazy to think that Christmas could maybe benefit from some of that spirit, that hope. Not whatever it is that some bell left in the child's possession after an unbelievable night with Santa is supposed to make us believe. I don't un even understand what those books are supposed to mean. Believe. Believe in what? The Polar Express? Believe that the mighty will be put down from their thrones, the rich sent empty away. Believe in the demise of the capitalism system, maybe. Anyway, that's more the spirit of the text than sleigh bells jingling, ring ting, tingling. Mary's song is pretty radical, there's no question about it. But it isn't angry, which you might actually expect. It's like joy. Mary's rejoicing, it says. I feel like that word could use a little help. It sounds so formal and liturgical. But I think it's a good word, really. It's like feeling ecstatic, like feeling euphoric, pleasure. Mary's not angry. She's delighted. She's rejoicing. The words don't sound like the words of a scared little girl like the words of a victim fantasizing revenge. It seems like the song of someone whose soul has been magnified. Not bitter and angry or hateful or envious or competitive or scared, but big and expansive and hopeful and free. Mary is happy that God scatters the proud in the imaginations of their hearts. I don't know what that means, having your imagination scattered. I mean, I'm familiar what it feels like to be scattered, much to the amusement and sometimes irritation of my children. Does God make the proud incapable of organized thought? That would be funny. But maybe it's all more beautiful than that like some sort of rearranging of something that's really deep in us, assuming that we are often the proud. The imaginations of our heart 
seems like something hugely determinative, what we imagine. Like, I don't know what sort of stories we tell ourselves or what desire or what we desire. And is that beautiful and free? Or is it like scared and competitive? Is it like formed by fear or all determined by economy? I mean, what do you imagine? What do you think about? What drives you and compels you? Makes you move one way or the other in any given moment? What do you think about when you plan for your future? Maybe it's like, if only the imaginations of our hearts could be scattered, rearranged. Like, God, please rearrange mine. And I don't know, all of North America's Donald Trump's, the rich and the powerful and the selfish, collectively, in large numbers, rearrange our imaginations. Mary sings that her soul has been magnified. I wonder what that's like. I wonder if it's sort of like having your imagination expanded. I mean, imagine her. And I mean, it's... All this stuff is, of course, very difficult to believe. But imagine this. God, this gracious, tender lover of the world, creator of life, continually creating life, life, and more life. God, the one who's going to save and redeem everything, is going to come into the world through her, Mary, actually, physically. I mean, good Lord. And for whatever reason, blessedness, she's able not to resist it at all or oppose it at all. Her imagination isn't locked up against it or her body. The grace of God is flowing through her in such a way that she will so obviously, so physically, so completely be the portal for mercy to enter into the world. It seems like that might magnify your soul. Not your ego, really, but like your heart. Like it would expand and free you and transform you. How could it not? Luke uses all this language in these verses about Mary. <clears throat> this language that refers back to passages in the Hebrew scripture. All these stories about the holy places in the Hebrew religion, the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle, so John, the fetus Baptist, leaps before Mary's womb. That's just like how King David leapt before the Ark of the Covenant. The Spirit of God, says Luke, hovers over Mary, just like the Spirit of God hovered over the Ark and the tabernacle in the desert. And there was this little room in the center of the temple in Jerusalem called the Holy of Holies. It was like the most holy place. And it was supposed to symbolize a place through which God made creation, like the portal through which life erupted. And so there was this huge liturgical moment once a year, this important religious feast day called the Day of Atonement. And on that day, only that day, the high priest sort of played this part, this role. He would play the role of God, actually who was going to come into the world. So the priest would go into this little room, the Holy of Holies, and he'd get all dressed up in there in these special flowing robes, these seamless robes that matched the material 
that was the veil which hung over the entryway of the Holy of Holies, this symbolic portal of creation. And so then at the culmination of this ceremony, everyone's standing around and they're singing and they're anticipating this and someone's playing the tambourines and the lute. And then the high priest walks out through the veil and in this moment of the ceremony, it was like Yahweh, the invisible, whose name you won't, weren't even supposed to pronounce, walked out into the world, and you could see God actually, visibly, materially. I mean, it was really just the high priest dressed up in a robe like some kid with a sheet over his head. It was an act, a performance. It was this ceremonial performance, whatever. But still in that moment, it was like the divine had become visible. This moment was like the divine had become physical in the world. But this was just a dress rehearsal. Mary, some of the early writers and artists imagine, is sitting on the floor working on weaving this veil for the temple that the priest is going to come through. When the angel comes to tell her that God is going to come into the world, not through that veil, but through her womb. How utterly mind-blowing, you know? It's like what Mary is doing in the nine months of her pregnancy is wearing, is weaving this veil of flesh, which will make God visible in the world. It was from her flesh that she was weaving, and it's not a dress rehearsal. It's like the real thing. It's crazy stuff. It's incredible in every meaning of the word, but I think beautiful, sort of cosmically destabilizing. It's crazy beautiful. Luke sort of suggests that there were all sorts of holy places that came before Mary, But these were merely cultic objects used for occasional symbolic acts, things that pointed beyond themselves. But Mary, this woman, not a cultic object, not something made of wood or gold, this human, alive flesh and blood, she's going to be the portal for the incarnation of God into the world. And she's not doing it in the midst of these huge and heavy sacred structures, like the temple, like the church, like the religious institution. She's doing it as a living human being, vulnerable, alive, a mother. Not really ceremoniously, not orderly, not obedient to the program set down by the ecclesiastical hierarchy. The Immaculate Conception however much it's surely been co-opted, really isn't about reinforcing some weird patriarchal notion of a woman unsullied by intercourse. It's something that's taking the thing outside of the system, the religious system, the power structure, the hierarchy, patriarchy, the system that runs the world. Mary's not a little chamber made of wood in the center of the temple that the high priest goes into and pretends to be something. It's really God, the evermost loving, gracious, tender lover of the world, who's going to emerge from her inner chamber. And no man needs to go into her first. 
in order to come out again in different robes. Mary is going to give birth to mercy, grace. And that doesn't come from men, actually. It comes more in the way that the original creation comes, as something out of nothing, immaculate conception. It doesn't come out of some ancient Hebrew male need to propagate or control. It doesn't come from the incredibly patriarchal order of the Hebrew temple. It doesn't come from the imperialist structure. It doesn't come from the institution. It doesn't come from anything run by man. It doesn't reinforce the system that runs the world, the machine. It overturns it. In the story of Mary, God has really put down the mighty from their thrones. The high priest at the temple totally loses his place. And it really exalts those of low degree, Mary and Elizabeth. And it sends the rich empty away. The old holy of holies is pretty empty now. But it's not all because... God hates the mighty and the rich and wants to smash them and incite the people to take up arms against the temple patriarchy or to have a bloody class war. But because it's not through the system that runs the world that the grace of God comes. And because the graciousness of God is so much better than anything we could possibly construct for ourselves. The throne is something that cages us in confines our imaginations and shopping malls and power struggles. God's trying to get through to us. And it isn't like business as usual. God's working on transforming the world. God's working on rearranging our imaginations, on magnifying our souls. It might not always feel like that's true. But on Christmas, something is born into the world that can't ever be expelled. Something that the machine can't possibly annihilate. And it is actually here for us to engage with.